Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stuff. Good morning and welcome to an amazing Friday in Portugal. Spring has sprung and it's just looking good out there. Today we've got Scott Bass all the way from San Diego. Now Scott is a well-known radio personality in those parts and does a lot of surf reports. And he's got a podcast with David D. Scales called Spit and another podcast of his own called The Boardroom Show, amongst many other things. He used to work for Surfer Mag back in the day. And yeah, we find out all about Scott's history in this episode. A nice, interesting thing, though, is that he has surfed four wave pools. And so we really get into the tales and stories all about those wave pool machines and the lagoons that surround them. So let's welcome Scott Bass to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. Hey, Scott, it's great to have you on the Wave Pool Mag podcast. How does it feel being on somebody else's podcast? <laughs> Hi, Nick. Thank you. Yeah, it feels good. I Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I hope I can provide some insight. Uh, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, you told me that you surfed four wave pools. So, I mean, that's uh, I've only surfed one. So, you know, it's a whole lot more insight than than I got. <laughs> well, which which one did you surf? Wave, uh, wave Garden HQ, the little R&D session in the middle of the Spanish Basque country. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. That's ground zero right there. It is. Yeah, it was pretty epic. I couldn't believe that I'd be walking the earth where all those pros had surfed before and all the wave pool developers around the world have, have been, you know, like Andrew Ross from, from Melbourne, he'd been there back in 2012. And yeah, uh, yeah a lot of history there within the industry. What's Andrew? What's Andrew Ross do? What's his position over in Melbourne? Um, well, he basically built Melbourne. I mean, he was the driving force behind the whole Melbourne Urban Surf project. And oh, um, right. he's since, as far as I know, he's since pulled back and is working with a company called Aventure, and they are doing wave pool developments around the world. And um, yeah, Urban Surf is still carrying on. I think he's got some kind of interest there as well. Obviously. Yeah. 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 But uh, cool. he's a great guy. We had him on the podcast. He's uh, he's really great to listen to. Very knowledgeable and um, knows everything you want to know about building a wave pool because he's done it. Isn't there another principal over in Melbourne? Somebody else. Somebody else that I'm thinking of. Damon is the CEO of oh, Urban Surf. Damon. Okay, maybe it was Andy then. I thought Damon doesn't ring a bell, but anyway, good for them. I'm stoked to see it. That thing looks like fun. Yeah, it looks amazing. Yeah? It looks absolutely incredible. So how's David Lee Scales? You guys make me laugh. I think, you know, you almost broke the mic one day. You guys seem to be having, having a proper disagreement on the Spit podcast. Yeah, we've had a few. We had a few. We had one big row that was sort of like, it was maybe the, our most famous episode because we got into it pretty heated, you know, pretty heated discussion. But but David's great. He's very uh, professional. He's he does a lot of the back end work for the show, if not you know ninety percent of it, and um, and he's just a fun guy to talk to. Like I said, he's he's super intelligent. He makes me look good. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's also fun to listen to with with uh, with Chaz on um, the what's it called the Beach Grit podcast. I think it is. Yeah, I've never listened to that one to be honest with you. Not that I wouldn't. I'm just you know like you. I'm busy and I listen to podcasts that are sort of outside of the surf realm yeah cool yeah. so i mean you went to school and did you go to school in southern california 
And what prompted you to move into digital media? Yeah, I did. I went to, um, I, I've lived in Southern California here since 1977. And so I did all my schooling here and um, the whole digital thing just kind of fell into my lap. Um, I was working as an intern at Surfer Magazine doing little writing pieces for the magazine, sort of the smaller stuff in the front of the magazine. Nothing too big, no features or anything, just like, you know, video reviews and stuff like that. And I was going to school at the same time. And then as soon as I graduated from college, uh, there was an opportunity to be the website editor for Surfer Magazine. And so I jumped at it and I really didn't know what I was doing. And frankly, to this day, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, but um, I was <laughs> I was able to turn the computer on and uh, and I sort of just learned trial by fire. You know, I just sort of learned as I went. It must have been amazing working at Surfer Magazine. You must have been, you know, sort of pinching yourself to, 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 to get a job like that. Was it, did it feel that amazing or was it just another job? No, no, absolutely. No, it was a dream job come true. It was a full on dream. You know, it was great. It was, um, it was an unreal opportunity and one that I'm forever grateful for. And, and I try to always give a shout out of thanks to uh, Steve Hawk and Evan Slater who hired me there. And it, it, it was a great experience and it's one that's still paying dividends to this day. You know, it was amazing because when I was a kid in, in South Africa in the 80s, just learning to surf, and obviously that was that was our, our magazine. Obviously, we, we had a little thing called Zigzag in South Africa, and then Surfer Magazine was the, was the absolute best experience ever. And we were always going to wait for it every month. Couldn't wait to see it. So, yeah, it reached all corners of the world. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, so yesterday I was actually talking with a, a fellow Afrikaner. Is that the right phrase? Yeah, man. A guy who's from South Africa is an Afrikaner. Is that correct? Well, there's two types of people. Well, there's, there's about 11 different nations in South Africa. But um, yeah, Afrikaners are, are of Dutch descent. And then we've also got um, South Africans of, of, of English descent from the United Kingdom. And then obviously lots of local tribes. So it's quite yeah. a melting pot. Well, I was speaking with Grant Ellis, who's from South Africa. I'm not sure which one of those he is. Um, it sounds like he's English with the last name Ellis. But um, we were talking about the magazine and the fact that there's very little print magazines available to us anymore and what that means to surf culture. And it, it seems to me that a monthly magazine like Zigzag or like Surfer or you name it, those sort of were like the glue that gave us um, the gave the culture at least some sort of understanding of where we were and where we were going. And it, it bound us the way that glue binds us. It, it, like I said, it gave us sort of a beam, a center beam to sort of walk on. And, and of course we could, we could foray into either sides of the equation, but a monthly magazine was super important, at least to me. And I imagine to you too, Nick, Absolutely. as far as, as far as keeping the culture bound by some sort of ethos and without that right now it feels like the culture is just there's a lot of it but we don't really know where we stand well you know what i think that is due to i mean yeah those days back when we were kids and we all gathered around the latest edition of surf like four or five kids 
you know, sort of passing it around and sharing. And it was a great experience. You're right. And it was, but it was one thing. Whereas these days, whenever you log on to the internet, you get your own personalized view of the world. So it might be different for a surfer in Hawaii or a a surfer in Portugal or whatever, you know, so you're getting a totally personalized view and you don't get, as you said, that one um, sort of broad stroke of culture that just pervades around the world. And so then the next question is, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Hmm. Well, that's debatable. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, you can get, obviously you can get, you can drill into anything you want these days, which is great because there's so much more information about it. I mean, if you wanted to check out the Mentawai Islands, you can go and check all, you know, the, the weather reports and everything. Um, whereas back in 1984, you'd see one, you know, small article about the Mentawais and you wouldn't be able to get much else. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. It's fascinating that, I mean, I could just go and wa- and like log on to Stab, you know, Stab Surf Magazine, their website, yeah. and just get all of my information. Certainly be missing something, you know, I, I, I would be missing that whole mental eye thing that you just spoke of, you know, like it's, so it, it's an interesting discussion. And by the way, welcome to my podcast. Ah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, because you're asking the questions today. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buddy. I love it. That's cool. It's just a habit, I guess. So <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your podcast because you've got quite a few projects on the go. I and mean, then there's the Boardroom Show, Spit Podcast, working for local radio. Is it TV? What, what kind of projects yeah. you got on the blog? Well, I've got a couple things. Right now, my main thrust of my energy is into the California Gold Surf Auction, which I'm producing now. I'm collecting vintage surfboards and, and um, you know, taking photographs of them and getting those prepared for the auction, which happens April 16th. Um, and then, and that's a lot of fun. I mean, you get to go into these guys's, uh, you know, these various collectors, they have these these beautiful honey holes of vintage surfboards that tell so much of the history that I think is we're sort of losing a little bit of that. But Mm -hmm. um, that's my main, my main thrust right now is, is working on the California gold surf auction. And then of course I do a daily surf report for the local um, public broadcasting radio station, PBS radio station. And I do those twice a day. And of course, the boardroom surfboard show is coming up this fall. We'll be doing the big boardroom surfboard show, which is our annual uh, surfboard manufacturing industry trade show. And that'll be happening again uh, in November or no, excuse me, in October of 2021. And you're confident that's going to go ahead, um, you know, obviously with all, all the COVID and everything around. Yeah, we're, we're fairly confident, you know, everyone is just, you know, sort of like forcing this thing, this COVID thing to, to be finished by summer. I mean, the Biden administration here in the United States is ramping up full speed and um, they're making it priority one to get herd immunity through vaccination. And there are some logistic hiccups right now, but they're moving forward and they're focused. And I'm confident that the United States is going to be more or less vaccinated by the end of summer. Oh, excellent stuff. But can we just circle back to your auction? Because that sounds really cool. I mean, what kind of pieces have you got? Have you got a, a Jerry Jerry Lopez lightning bolt from the 80s? Or what, what, kind of, yeah. what kind of boards you got? 
yeah, we've got all sorts of cool Lopez stuff. We have a a Lopez lightning bolt that is a collaboration between Reno Abalera and Jerry Lopez. And it says as much on the stringer. It says, you know, in pencil, it says Lopez Abalera or Reno Lopez. Um, and it's a lightning bolt from probably very early days, like 1970, maybe. Um, we have a Jerry Lopez shaped uh, Greg Knoll Surf Center Honolulu. Ben Ipa Ski. So we have these three elements coming together. It's a Greg Knoll logo with Jerry Lopez's signature on the stringer and a Ben Ipa Surf Ski um, logo on it. And that's earlier than the previous board I mentioned. That's probably circa 69. And then um, we've got we've got 40 or 50 just beautiful vintage historically significant, culturally significant surfboards, um, you know, from Dick Brewer to Hanson longboards to Bing longboards to all sorts of beautiful guns and um, just a, a wide swath of, of history that's that's coming through. Sounds incredible. So the auction, is it going to be online or are you going to have an event? The auction is online. We've been doing online auctions for a couple of years now, um, pre-COVID, in fact, and they they work out great because it allows for people like you, people you know that are in different yeah. locations of the world, to get involved, and um, and it's all in real time. The bidding's all in real time, so you can be anywhere in the world and be able to to bid on these items. I better get my checkbook. Sounds good. Yes, yes, <laughs> please do. Okay. Okay, because, uh, well, obviously, this is the Wavepool Mag podcast, so we'd love to talk a little bit about wave pools, and, and you've surfed four pools. So um, do you mind if we dig into, into each one and the journey that took you there and what, what led up to, um, to heading over to the pool? So what, what would be the first mission you went into um, regarding wave pools? Yeah, let's see. The first pool was the Typhoon Lagoon Pool at Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and I was there, um, let's see, I was there for a trade show. I was there for Surf Expo, a, a really large surf industry, probably the only remaining large, full, complete surf industry trade show in the continental United States. And that happens in Orlando, Florida, as I mentioned. So I got to be involved in one of those um, sort of industry wave pool retreats where certain people got wristbands and were invited to come along. And it was, um, that was a lot of fun. So that was in the evening. Um, they had, you know, closed down the, um, Disney park and they had opened up the wave pool to the surf industry. And I just remember being, you know, like I, I'll tell you what, any wave pool that I go to, it's like being a kid in a candy store. It's like being a kid on Christmas morning. It's just, the feeling that I get is just one of, of complete stoke, um, of a little bit of anxiety, you know, about how am I going to do? Am I going to be able to perform? There's a lot of eyeballs on you, as you know. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, there's the blue water of the Typhoon Lagoon. Uh, that wave in and of itself is sort of outdated as far as the technology. But it's still so much fun to just be in the water. You know, and to know that there's a wave coming your way in two minutes and and to hear the um, 
you know, sort of the energy of the caisson and know that within 15 seconds, this wave is going to be upon you. I'm just stoked, you know, like I've, I've never not been stoked at a, at a wave park, uh, regardless of the technology. Yeah. I was at Typhoon Lagoon, um, last year actually. And we, we got as far as the door and, um, I didn't, we couldn't get in for some reason, but they seem to make it quite difficult for you to get a surf session because, as you said, it's before and after you know the regular day's trade that goes in and, and just swims in the pool. Um, is that is do you think that's on purpose or what? I do, I think that the pool's generally used for um, you know, lay people, you know, this the general public who are just. You know, they're concerned. Safety is going to be number one at Disney World. So they're like, look, let's not run the wave on any sort of monumental scale as while we have the general public in the pool. We got to keep these people safe. And so I don't even know what they do between, you know, nine and five regarding the, the wave size. I'm sure they barely even run the thing. I don't know. Um, I, but I'm sure they scale it down so that joe q public can ride his boogie board you know and then they do they schedule moments for like you know there's some florida university surf teams that use the pool um after hours or before hours and and i think that's how they run it just for you know dollars and cents but i remember looking it up and trying to research it before we went over because you know we went over with my daughter and we're going to do the whole sort of disney world kind of thing and i thought well hey hang on maybe i can just grab a surf and it was really quite tricky to find Maybe I'm just stupid, but I was trying to, it was quite, it didn't feel like they were really pushing the surf thing. I couldn't find a really easy website just to log in and buy a surf session. And um, it feels like it must be kind of underground and, and, and in high demand, actually. So I don't know. I don't understand it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think it's like an a open to the public all day, every day surf session type of a wave. It's just, mm-hmm. they know they have the capability to get it to, a place where you and I will be happy to surf it. But for the most part, they're running it on a much smaller scale so that people don't drown. Sure. Like BSR is probably totally different. You could just go there, get a slot and surf. Easy as possible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Completely marketed to you and I and to the people listening to this podcast, you know, to the hardcore surfer that wants to go get a wave. So tell me about the time you got on the plane with a board and headed over to to, uh, Waco, Texas. Yeah, that was interesting. That was a lot of fun. So we did what you said. You know, we went online. We're like, let's go to Waco. Let's check this out. You know, it was me and my son and um, a friend of mine and his son. And we we set the whole thing up. We paid for it in advance. We knew we had, a, you know, our two hours booked. And we got on a flight. And it was just a short flight from California to Texas, maybe three and a half, four hours, something like that. I think we landed in Dallas, rented a car, drove maybe an hour and 15 minutes to Waco. Um, all of it, a lot of fun, you know, like the pre-session excitement, um, being in Texas, you know, that's sort of, it's sort of a weird thing, right. To fly to Dallas, to go surfing. Um, when we got there, we were just kind of stoked, you know, like we'd never been to Waco, um, you know, just kind of checking out the region, um, and then driving on a dirt farm road to this place in the middle of nowhere, um, it was exciting, you know, and checking in. Yeah. And at the time, um, Shane Magnuson was was sort of running it. Um, and he and his wife were super nice and very helpful. And um, and you felt really welcomed. You know, you felt like you were getting sort of a Texas welcome, just 
big-hearted people, um, kind folks. And um, is he Texan, Shane? No, he's he's from Maui. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> of course, he's a surfer. Sorry, yeah. stupid question. <laughs> no, yeah, he's a pro surfer from Maui, and so. Um, but that was fun. So we checked in. You know, we 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 had our board. I actually, I don't think I've ever. In fact, I've never gone to a wave pool with a board. I always just rent the boards there because I, I hate traveling with boards. I just, and I know they've got pretty good board. Most of these places have got pretty good boards and I highly recommend, you know, I don't know for me, don't bring a board, just go and rent a board. You know, they're going to have a pretty good board and a guy like me, I mean, I'm 55 years old. What am I going to, I'm not doing airs. I don't need my personal board to go do airs, you know, like, I know that they've got a pretty good fire wire or um, I think I actually rented at, at Waco. I rented a super, a super brand surfboard, you know, and, um, and I Which talked is cool because you get to try, you get to try different styles of boards and, you know, I, I suppose it works. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and like I said, I'm just doing bottom turns. I mean, let's be real, you know, like, what am I really doing? I'm just, I'm doing a bottom turn. I can do a bottom turn on a bunch of different boards. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, it's not like I'm setting the world on fire with my performance, you know? So there's no need for me to be all, oh, I got to have my own board. You know, like to me, that's, I'd much rather travel through the airports without a board. So much simpler. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that feeling when um, the wave just rises out of nowhere, uh, it's kind of freaky. Did you deal with that pretty easily at, um, at BSI? You get accustomed to it real quick. I think I actually cooked out my first couple of waves. I, I, I And it's funny because I had surfed at in Austin at Enland. And as I mentioned, Typhoon Lagoon. So I kind of went into it all cocky, you know, like telling my son and my buddy and his son, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to be weird when the wave pops up, you know, don't worry, you'll catch it, you know. And I, I think the first wave popped up and I think all of us kind of missed it, you know, and um, back to the end of the line. But mm. the cool thing about Waco and about that technology, and I believe, um, which technology is Waco? Is it? Is it's it American Wave Machines. Oh, yeah. American okay. Machines, AWM. Yeah. Right. Bruce McFarland. So the yeah. point is, is that the, the waves come fast and furious. You're not like disappointed that you missed a wave. You're going to get your fill, which is great. And so we all missed our waves and um, they all looked at me like, hey, I thought you knew what you were doing. And I was like, you know, OK, I better not miss the next one. But you do, <laughs> as you mentioned, Nick, you, you do sort of get into the rhythm of the wave and you, you start to see the the swell sort of rise up on the wall next to you. And you know, at that point, okay, don't be too close to the wall paddle sort of into the middle of the wave pool and you're, you're going to pick up the wave. But I do remember Waco being sort of challenging. I think we surfed the, the, the top level wave, not the, the one that you have to pay more for like the pro level wedgie tube that you see on the YouTube clips. We didn't pay for that one. We paid for like sort of the generic top level. I forget what they call it, but it was the most, high performance wave that the general public can get. And I found that wave to be difficult, frankly, you know, by the time I got my act together, the wave had passed me by a few times and I talked to Shane Magnuson about it. And he goes, you know what, between you and me, I kind of like the intermediate level wave more than the top level wave because the intermediate level waves a little longer and it feels more kind of like a point wave where you can kind of get a couple of turns in and, 
And the pro level wave to me was pretty quick and pretty fast. And you had to be on your A game and one little bobble on the takeoff and the thing passed you by. Yeah. And then I guess it fizzled out. But what kind of, how do they dish them out? I mean, they're, they're three or four or five waves in a set and then they have a bit of a wait and a lull. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It was three or four or five waves and then a bit of a wait, maybe two minutes or whatever. And, um, and I think they, we had like 10 people in a session at a time. And mm-hmm. like I said, at first you were a bit anxious about getting your wave count, but eventually by, you know, 30 minutes into your hour long session, you, you were catching plenty of waves because of those 10 surfers in the water, let's face it, not all of them are, are, you know, intermediate level. There's a lot of beginners and sure. they would just miss, they would just miss the wave, you know? And so you could pick up scraps here or there and I got plenty of surf. There's no doubt that you got your fill. But it feels like quite an empty, I mean, not an empty pool, but I mean, it's, if there's only like 10 people in the water at one time, and you look at the videos that you must have seen of Bristol and Melbourne, when, when a full pool, you could probably have what, I don't know, 40 people in the pool at one time. It must be a totally different experience. Yeah, I, I haven't experienced Melbourne um, or Bristol. Um, is Bristol Nick's wave? Yeah, or is that, Nick Hansfield, yeah. Nick. yeah. Yeah, 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 Bristol's new. And those are both Wave Garden, right? Exactly, yeah, Wave Garden Co. Yeah. But then you said you jumped over to Enland in Texas, in Austin, right? Um, and that was Wave Garden's first technology, as same as Snowdonia. How, how did you find that? Because that must have been quite interesting. Was it a long time ago? Yeah, that was. That was, you know, I don't know, three or four years ago or something like that. And um, that was actually the first experience I had with besides Typhoon Lagoon. So I I went to Typhoon Lagoon. Then we went to inland in Austin, as you mentioned, Wave Garden's first iteration of their technology. And and again, I'm I'm just stoked to be there, you know, so I'm not like being hypercritical um, necessarily, you know, about the wave. Now I'm being critical, but I'm not being hypercritical, but my stoke level is getting me to a place where I'm just stoked to be surfing in the middle of Austin, Texas, you know? And, and so because it was my second experience, it was a much better wave, a longer wave, more like real surfing than say Typhoon Lagoon, which is really a short Typhoon Lagoon is a short wave, as you know. Now the, the inland wave was long. It was rippable. um, It was fun. And that's about as far as I would go with that first iteration. It wasn't the greatest experience. Um, you were you got kind of bored with it after your two hours. You're like, okay, I did this. I tried this. It was cool. I'm glad I did it. Would I come back? I don't know. Maybe. You know, it wasn't like a, a life-changing moment like the way the Kelly mm. Slater way of experience is. Sure. I mean, there's still – obviously with Inland, inland it's um, – Nobody knows what's going on because there's kind of like this big press vacuum around it. Well, after Kelly Slater bought it, and uh, that we don't know what they're doing with it. There's just a bunch of you know satellite images that all you can see, and, and it doesn't seem like anybody knows really what's going on. I mean, do you have an inkling of what's going on at Inland? Not really. I do know what you know. I I have a guy that lives in Austin that's been sending me pictures, and he's basically like, "Look, it's on hold. They have they have torn up the old pool." So it's just a pile of, of concrete and they've dismantled the whole thing. And I think, 
Kelly and his company are just sitting on it going, okay, well, we've got this property. Let's just see how it, this whole thing plays out. And of course, COVID has kind of put a damper on everything as far as development's concerned. So my, I anticipate that there will be a really nice Kelly Slater wave pool in Austin, but that's probably not going to get, um, you know, start to move to fruition until um, at the earliest, you know, this summer, we might start to see press releases about, hey, we have plans, you know what I mean? But actually getting bulldozers and getting getting development taking place, again, I'm just speaking from my gut. I don't have any insider knowledge, but I anticipate that they'll probably start to think about how they're going to develop that thing in the middle of this year. And we may see some movement from a development standpoint in 2022. But of course, they've got, you know, they've got Palm Springs on their mind. They've got Kelly yeah. Slater Wave Company has that pool. Um, I think it's called um, Coral Mountain. So they've yeah. got Coral Mountain. That's going to be a full service Kelly Slater Wave Company. And I think that that's more exciting to the to the people at the KS Wave Co. Because of um, all of the upside of hotels and homes and dining and amenities and more of an upscale region, you know, um, I personally think Austin is beautiful. I mean, Austin's a great place for a wave because of all the nightlife, the the music scene there in Austin's incredible. And so they're sitting on a couple of really cool opportunities, both in Austin and in Palm Springs, Kelly Slater wave company. If they've got their hands full with some cool stuff in front of them. The one thing that's always been in the back of my mind when I think about Kelly Slater wave company, and I've never spoken to them, don't know what their deal is, but it just seems like, they're working with really old technology and are they going to move into next level wave creation? And I, I don't know. Do you think they are? Do you think they're going to keep the train? I do. And I'll tell you why, because there's no doubt that that's the best wave that I've surfed. And I would go out on a limb and say, it's probably the best wave as far as man-made wave pools are concerned. Now I haven't surfed, um, you know, the, the new wave garden cove technology and and, I, and i'm not taking anything away from those because i know those are fun and in fact those are different you know those those provide you with more waves per hour or whatever but i think that the kelly slater wave technology is going to stay stick around because well i should say only it only only if they can make it a feasible business on a spreadsheet and i think they can in Palm Springs because they're looking at upscale resort, high income individuals that would be using this technology. And in fact, if you look at Lemoore here in California, which is in, for the listeners that don't know, it's in the middle of nowhere. Now they're booking that thing. And it's my understanding that they've been pretty good about booking that thing at, at basically $60,000 a day. And they're more, they're more or less. um, And again, I don't, I haven't seen what their booking rate is like, but they're more or less getting people to pay that to go up there. And everybody that does pay the 60 grand is it's usually people that can afford to do it. In other words, the, the $10,000, let's say you get 10 buddies at, I don't know, Let's say you get 12 buddies at $5,000 each. That's that covers your 60 grand. Those guys that are throwing down 5,000 bucks, that's 
to them, that's like 500 bucks to you and I. In other words, they're in a whole different realm of, um, you know, income. So it's not that big a deal. In other words, there's a market that's available for that high dig wave. And, you know, it might not be you and I, you know, what you and I might just go, oh, you know what, let's spend that 500 bucks on a plane ticket to Hawaii or, or you know, in, in your case, wherever that may. Where are you located, by the way, Nick? Are you in South Africa or are you in France? I'm in Portugal, in the south of Portugal. Oh, so it would just be a okay. short ride up to Nazaré. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're 500, you know, you, you might fly to, you know, the Canary Islands or something, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so, yeah. but, but there is a market for these high level, high income individuals. There's quite a few, I mean, Silicon Valley is just down the street from Kelly Slater's wave pool. And there's people that are making a lot of money that are hardcore surfers and there's a lot of them. And so I think that they can keep the technology because I do think it's going to pencil out as a business. And, and that wave is like, ridiculous now it might be boring to watch but it's invigorating and a a hell of a lot of fun to ride and it's not a wave that you necessarily get bored with um if you're riding it now again you might watch it and be bored watching it but riding it is a hell of a lot of fun so let's zoom in how did you get there well the first time i've ridden it the first time i rode it excuse me um we were invited by the kelly slater wave company dave David Scales and I, they had a media day, basically. They had a, hey, coming out party, media day, we're going to invite media. So they invited, you know, Surfer Magazine, Surfing Magazine, Stab Magazine, um, you know, various journalists, Nick Carroll, a bunch of people for a two-day, basically, media coming out party. And they invited uh, David Scales and I to show up because they knew we talked about it a lot on the podcast. And that was really nice of them. And we had, and I'll tell you another thing about Kelly Slater Wave Company is that they do a really good job from a customer service standpoint. You feel like a VIP when you're there. I mean, they put your name on a locker, they show you, they greet you, they, you know, they, they greet you with a cup of coffee, you know, there's unreal food. The food's incredible there. The amenities, the hot showers, the, the whole thing before you even get in the water, you're like, okay, this is really cool. You know, it's not like, like if you go to Waco, they're like, I mean, look, Shane was very nice, but I mean, the amenities they are like, yeah, you can go over there and get a hot dog if you want. It's eight bucks or whatever, you know? (laughs) And you're like, and Kelly Slater, they're like, here's some sushi, you know, and it's free, (laughs) you know, And, and it's as much as you can eat, you know what I mean? And here's some bubbly water and it's got, you know, mint in it. And they've, you know, there's cucumber sandwiches. It's ridiculously nice. Well, I'd hope so for the, 60 grand. Yeah, well, exactly, right? They, they know who their market is and they treat you well. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty cool. So anyway, to answer your question, we were invited there. That's how we got up there the first time was through this media day. And you must have felt pretty, like a, a pretty momentous moment, like when those gates open. I mean, we've seen those gates on, on all the vlogs, Jamie O'Brien, whatever, and uh, Ben Gravy and... All those guys and the gates open. You must think, wow, it's like, you know, Willy Wonka's Dude, chocolate factory. It's to- it's, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's Willy Wonka's <laughs> chocolate factory. He opens those gates and you're just like, you know, you're singing that song. What's that song? I wish I had it. Da-da-dum, 
That's a beautiful song. Anyway, Willy Wonka comes to mind, right? Thank you. I did a pretty good job there, didn't I? Beautiful rendition there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the so the that's the first Willy Wonka moment, right? You're like, oh my God, this is insane. And they're greeting you. And there's like these little Oompa Loompas running around with sushi. And then, <laughs> then, then they... You know, you're looking at the wave, but the lake is still, there's no waves breaking and you haven't really seen it, you know, and you don't know really what's happening yet. They haven't turned on the chocolate river, so to speak. And then they turn it on and you hear the cha- the train engine sort of steaming up to speed and you're like, oh my God, it's about to go down. And there's a, usually for us, there was a group of waters. In fact, it was the guys from Stab Magazine. They were in the water waiting for the first wave of the morning. And luckily, those guys can surf. It was Sam and it was um, a couple of other guys, I think Aaron, and those guys surf good. So the first wave came and you're like, oh, my God, there it is. And it's much bigger than you think. You know, it looks like it's a, a shoulder high wave and it is a shoulder high wave. But when you see the whole thing get up to speed and and unload and the first surfer take off, you're just like, Oh my God. And it's a tube from the beginning and these guys are ripping and people are hooting and it's sheet glass and offshore. And it's like, it's like Kira. It just runs for, I mean, it's a long ass wave. And that's what makes it so much bigger and grander in the eyes of the, the person that's there for the first time. It, it's just a much larger spectacle than any of the other waves. Wow, sounds incredible. Sounds absolutely amazing. It is. It's it, it's mind-blowing and and I've said this before on on our podcast and I'll say it on this one. In my opinion, there's all the other waves um they just pale in comparison to Kelly's wave. What do you reckon about surf legs cuz that looks like a pretty epic wave. You know what? That's the next one that I think is incredible. Like that's the next one where I'm like, okay, because what they've done is they've sort of taken Kelly's wave quality and they've put it into the, um, you know, sort of the paradigm of wave garden or American wave machines or Tom Lochtefeld surf locks in that you get the quality of Kelly, but you get the quantity of those other technologies. And so they've sort of, they've sort of, now I think they're onto something really big. What's interesting to me about that is that technology looks really expensive and I don't know, but it just, and it also seems like if you don't have the engineers to fix it, if it breaks down, like it feels like you have to, there's like three guys that know how to fix it. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Whereas the other technologies are all basically similar. Like the engineering is all basically similar on those caisson air compression technologies. And even the train technology, it's all kind of the similar engineering. Like you feel like the guy that that works at Wave Garden probably has an idea of how the guy how the technology works at Kelly Slater's. Whereas the surf lakes where they drop this plunger, it's real Mad Maxian type of vibe, and you just feel like there's some guy in like an old beat up pickup truck that has overalls on and has greasy arms and like a plumber's (laughs) wrench is the only guy that can fix it. And his name is, you know, his name is like Ed and he smokes a cigar and he's like 70 years old, you know, like, like, is there anybody else that can fix this thing? But Ed, you know, 
So, um, uh, you know, th- that's yeah. the scary part about like, if you were to look at this technology as a potential for your development, if it breaks down, do you have to send Ed over from Cairns in Australia to fly him in to fix the thing? Yeah, it's a good, valid point. Valid point. Because huh? it is yeah. uh, different engineering. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so, l- thinking about surfing's future a little bit, how are wave pools going to affect surfing's future? Well, this is the this is the question, right? This is the great question. And in a weird way, this question was going to be answered by this time, except for COVID. I think we would know already. And so the the answer to that question is, are these wave pools businesses? And if these wave pools are businesses, they are going to have a mammoth and massive effect on surfing's future. And um, and I think that we can... If you look at Waco, Waco's done a pretty good job of being booked out and staying booked out. But what we don't know about Waco is what was year two like. In other words, year one was booked solid. Now, that's just going to be the case because of curiosity, because people want to experience it. Year two is really where you determine whether you have a business or not. Are people coming back? Are we booked in year two and year three? Or was this just a one-time wonder? People are over their curiosity, and now they're going somewhere else with their dollars. And because of COVID, I don't think we know what year two looks like. Um, And even if Waco was booked in year two, it was that because of COVID, you know, not in spite of COVID. So um, I think we need to wait it out and determine where we're at with this. I don't think you can... I don't think there's any doubt that wave pools are going to stay in our future. And it's just a matter of people tweaking the spreadsheet to make it work from a business standpoint. These things are not built just for, you know, out of the, out of the good graces of the guys that are building them so that we can all enjoy them and have fun. There's businesses that are wrapped around them and we're going to have to see how that, that pans out. But you're so right about that uniqueness when it opens. Like, for example, Snowdonia in Wales in the UK, when that opened, they reckon they had 150,000 visitors in the first year, and that was that had doubled their expectations. And I reckon it was due to that just because it was unique and it was new and it was uh, saying, so once they start proliferating around, you're right, is that going to be a regular thing? And are those businesses going to be able to hold up? Because I think um, if you look at, and you'll know this better than I do because I haven't been in the surf industry. Um, but like surf industry, you know, I don't know how many billions of dollars worth, but it's basically been propped up by T-shirt sales and media for so many years, right? And now, exactly. now you've got this billion-dollar wave pool industry you know, thrusting, thrusting surfing into investors' minds. So that's obviously got to alter the, the dynamics a lot. But you're right, the proof's in the pudding if it's going to work. Well, a couple of things. Um First of all, Andy there at Surf, what is it, Surf Snowdonia? Yeah, it's now called Adventure Park Snowdonia. Yeah, but it used to be called Surf okay. Snowdonia. Yeah. Adventure Park Snowdonia. That guy, Andy. So I used to, uh, for a couple of years, I was the MC for uh, this Wave Pool Summit thing. And the people that organized that, they had me to lunch one time. And I said, you know what we have to do? You guys have to do this. You have to create a wave pool or wave park hall of fame 
And um, you need to start acknowledging some of these people that are doing this thing. You know, now is the time to start doing that. And I told him, I go, the very first person, the number one person to be inducted into this Hall of Fame is that guy, Andy, at, at Surf Snedonia. And I'll tell you why, because he had the balls. He was first to market. To be first to market is a ballsy thing to do. He just basically said, you know what? We're doing it. And and it took him to 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 man up and to roll the dice for everyone else to go kind of exhale and go, okay, let's start doing it. You know, there's one in the marketplace. And as soon as he did that, as you'll note, all of these other places started to pop up. Like technologies were getting funding and and developments were happening and like, you know, cores did Austin, Texas and 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 Andy deserves all the credit for for being first to market, you know, because I mean, if you're first to market, guess what? You're also probably the first one to fail because the technologies are going to change so quickly that you're like stuck with, you know, old technology and there's a bunch of new stuff that's popping up all around you. And I just think that Andy, I forget his last name. I think it starts with an H or something. Ains Kerr. Okay. Yeah. Andy, that gentleman, and I've met him. He's a sweet guy, good guy. And, um, and I know he took his family business and they basically just kind of went for it. I think that guy deserves a lot of credit. He deserves to be the first one inducted into the Wavepool Hall of Fame. Being first to market Absolutely. is a ballsy thing. It, is. it sure is, yeah. And I'm sure he's listening right now. So well done, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I interviewed him. I think he was the first interview I did on this podcast. And it was so amazing to chat to him because you're right. And, and he kind of got left with old technology. And I said to him, so how do you feel when the how did you feel when when WaveGarden called you up and said, uh, Andy, we got some new tech. You want to check it out? And uh, and he was like, Well, I'm I've got this old tech. What am I going to do? And he was actually he's really happy with it because he says it's an experience. And personally, I still want to go and surf that wave. I know it's like like you said in inland, it, it's not the best wave in the world, but just just out of pure homage to the beginners, you know, to the to the people who are first in. Well, that, that speaks that speaks to what does the, you know, your first question, well, your question earlier about where are we going with all of this, right? What Andy has is he has an aspirational park. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, the top-notch surfers in the world might not want to go there. But you know who does want to go there? Everybody in England? Because it's yeah. it's aspirational. It's a great place to learn how to surf. It's a perfect place for that, you know? And I'm not sure if WaveGarden has approached him about upgrading his his tech or not, and or what that looks like, or you know what are the costs involved, and if there's a break in the costs. And, and that's none of my business, but I would hope that they would. But regardless, he has an aspirational park. You can go there, learn to surf. Um, you know, spend two or three years learning how to surf there, and then move on to um, you know Bristol or wherever, mm, or even the ocean. Yeah, one day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, um, Scott, I just got one last random question for you, and it's it's just about surf tech. Have you ever gotten into the Surfline sessions tech? You know that um, for those of the guys out there who don't know, essentially you've got the Surfline app on your watch, and when you surf in front of a Surfline cam, it tracks you, edits your waves, and it serves it up to you before you even leave the water. I have not done that. Um, 
I will tell you that the vanity in me would absolutely do that, but I wouldn't tell you I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have somebody filming me because it's also like a, you know, a um, sure it's a vanity thing as well, but it's also like what am I doing wrong kind of thing and, and getting a video of yourself because where I surf, we don't have that many photographers on the beach or videographers. And especially if you think about that in a surf pool context, can you imagine having like some high tech cams all around and you, you know, you're wearing your watch or, or your, your armband or whatever it is? Your wristband and you go in there and when you by the time you come out you've already got all these clips of you surfing on your phone i mean it's just well that, that's absolutely going to happen that's a great point nick and that's absolutely yeah. going to happen and it that actually already happens at kelly slater's wave pool you can get every single ride um but it doesn't come right to your phone you kind of got to go through a little bit of old school you know pass me the thumb drive type thing but um <laughs> i will tell yeah. you this if where I surf, there's a cam, and you can see yourself surfing on the on the Surfline Cam Rewind. And I will tell you that there's been more more often than not, if I get a good wave, I'll paddle up to somebody and go, "Hey, do you know what time it is?" <laughs> so that, so that I can go home and look at the wave on on the Surfline <laughs> Cam Rewind. So I am guilty of of some vanity there. No, no, it's definitely worthwhile. But Scott. Um, Thank you so much for coming on to Wavepool Mag. It's been really great to meet you. And uh, yeah, you've got some awesome stories there. So I'll keep listening to you. And thanks so much for, for, for being on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Nick, thank you. Anytime. I, I look forward to being on again. If you need me, I'm here for you. I, I love what you guys are doing. And, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Wavepool Mag. Excellent. Great. Thanks again. Thank you. Wavepool Mag. For your curiosity and stoke.